Okay, so here we are. Uh, this doesn't have a name yet. It will soon. Hopefully not later. I'm Evan. I'm Craig. And we're going to talk about uh, things and also stuff. <laughs> so, Fantastic. Yeah, so I figure we'll start out this uh, whole shebang with, you know, the burning topic of COVID. Yay. Okay. Uh, do we have... Uh... Other topics we're planning on getting to eventually here in this one, or are we uh, just going to try and stick around that? Just different subtopics, if you will. Well, there's so much to cover with that, and I was actually kind of wanting to start with the whole Russia vaccine thing, because that's like cutting, <laughs> okay. cutting news. <laughs> and a lot of people well, are going to be really interested in that. Well, we, we can, can, we can, we can first, run from there. What we can do first is kind of to, to preempt that a little bit, to, to really kind of frame the like, my response to that. We can go ahead and just talk about the topic of vaccines in general on, on, uh, getting into COVID. Um, go for it, man. So, um, with a vaccine, what you're really looking for here is to, uh, to get uh, a lasting immunity that will, uh, allow your body to basically recognize very quickly, uh, a new case of the, of the virus coming in and then, uh, wipe it out before it has a chance to get a kind of a foothold in your body. So, um, there are some complications with this. Uh, some things do not have lasting immunity to uh, to much of an effect. Yeah, I was Vax, actually about to cut uh, in and mention that specifically with this one. That seems to be the case of yeah. uh, what is it, eight to eighteen months average. So here's the thing with uh, with coronaviridae, which is one of the several groups of viruses that make up the common cold. So by the way, those out there saying that it's just a flu, you got the wrong disease. Um, <clears throat> so coronaviridae, um, yeah, it's members just a cold, that, bro. Yeah, exactly. Coronavirus members that infect humans, uh, the average um, immunity for them, uh, the average peak immunity, so maximum amount of IgG, uh, immunoglobulin G, so the lasting immunity anybody in the in the human body, the peak concentration is about three months, um, and then it is back down to background levels by about one to two years. So. That's all well and good. Uh, if you want to get herd immunity, that means that if you have the ability to do so, you'd have everybody absent vaccines infected basically at the same time if you wanted to get something that was effective. Uh, but that's just not going to happen, and we also really don't want that to happen. Oh, so yeah, vaccines I mean, that's the whole vaccine. stop the spread thing because, I mean, it really would legitimately overwhelm our health systems. Yeah, it, and people don't realize exactly how thin that line is already. The fact that hospitals look kind of empty is because we pushed everything out to oh, make that of, 10%, like 30%. Speaking of that, since we're on this whole topic, let me interject something here that a lot of, uh, I hear a lot about that really kind of needs to be said. When all of this shit first went down, there was the issue with uh, everything's a coronavirus death. You know, guys getting hit by cars. You know, there's a coronavirus death. Guy dies of a heart attack. Coronavirus death. <laughs> Yeah. Now, a lot of that, absolutely, complete bullshit. But there is a reason, and so many people don't put these things together. That reason is these places were running out of money because everything had been cut. You know, there's nobody coming in for their colonoscopies. There's nobody coming in for their elective surgeries. There's not people coming in for their uh, physicals, say. You know, their immunizations. You know, because... It's all been shut down. Everything just got shut down. Pow, like that. And 
so they had to stay open and they were presented with a window and they had to fudge the numbers to keep well, the money flowing. Now there's more to it than that. A lot of what of here. But it's kind of something I think is worth being discussed and said. So we can come back to the numbers issues. That's that is I would say that's a bit of a minor side of of it, but there is something to be said there. Yeah, and um, there's kind of a whole discussion of that, but it uh, it's worth mentioning. Sure. You know, a lot so, of people so, haven't put consideration into that, and I think you know, as I'm thinking of it, it's probably worthwhile to mention during this. Sure. So but anyway, uh, please but, continue. Bring it back to vaccines. Um, so. Basically, the idea is to use a vaccine to uh, stimulate your body with a weakened form of the virus, obviously, um, to uh, to cause the antibodies to show up ahead of time. Um, that way, your body just recognizes the disease. You don't have to go through having your body fight it off. Um, <clears throat> so a couple of things with that. There's a couple of issues with, with vaccines in that one, a vaccine might just not work. Uh, those are usually just, those are all discarded. You don't usually ever see a case of that anymore. Uh, not for at least like 50 or 60 years, I think at this point. So sometimes the vaccine just doesn't work. We know what those look like now, so we don't use them. The other side of that though, there's that sometimes they work a little too well. Um, and this is called enhancement effect. So China actually kind of ran into this one with SARS back in 2003 when they were trying to do vaccinations. Uh, they got out to 100,000 people vaccinated before they found out that the vaccines were causing people's immune systems to go crazy, and it was killing them. So it wasn't the virus that was killing these these people who were in the trials. It was the damn vaccine. So that's really not good. And that's well, one of the reasons on why... for a quick second, actually. And what was it? <clears throat> Excuse me. Was it the vaccine itself? Because I've heard a bit about this. Was it the vaccine or was it the frequency of the vaccinations? So that's, that's not, um, that's not very well defined. Basically. Uh, we have an idea of what that is outside of China when we've tried to replicate this effect and, uh, you know, in, in, in vitro, not in vivo. Um, so it, it's, it's, uh, it's basically, it's a, it's a sensitization that is a problem. And it's not quite clear if it was the frequency or if it was just the onset uh, from, from the particulars of the vaccine itself. And to give some context on this, uh, apparently the vaccines were given out at a much more uh, right, there was frequent schedule form. than it would normally be. It, wouldn't, it wasn't like uh, well, yearly, it was like seasonally, right? Well, no, here's the thing, though. That's, so that is, no, just no is, not, no is the answer to that. Okay. So, so the vaccination was a single monolithic uh, trial that was done uh, by a CCP, you know, CCP administered, et cetera. So basically the details are lacking, um, to say the least. I can imagine. But the, the important thing here is that they were trying, it's, it's just like you have a, a, a cold flu, the idea is to do it one and done. Like I said, this happened back in like 2003. So it's, this is not something that they did for very long. They basically, they had a vaccine that was in vitro viable and also sustained uh, past phase one. So they had, a, say, a handful of people, like, you know, in their case, like a thousand that they tested it on. Um, the vast majority of them didn't get any, uh, another recurrence of SARS. So uh, once, so they do these things called viral challenges. So when they talk, when they talk about a challenge in, uh, in the context of vaccination, it's when they expose a patient who has been vaccinated or not vaccinated to a fresh sample of the virus 
and then they see whether or not they get infected. So uh, a, viral, a subsequent viral challenge or serial viral challenges in a study is when you do this multiple times over time. So it is uh, a, a plausible scenario that you would be um, vaccinated and then later on you'd run into somebody who was either sick or unvaccinated. And the idea is you don't want to pass the virus along or get contract the virus. Clearly with a vaccine, uh, you're not going to be passing the virus along if you have it in your body. Uh, it's going to be taken care of and the vaccine is not going to cause the virus to, to persist. So uh, you do these challenges over time. And one of the reasons why we have the 12 month kind of schedule for these uh, vaccination trials is because we don't want to cause these enhancement effects. It was a mandated law in China at the time to vaccinate everyone. And it's lucky that they only got 100,000 in out of 1.6 billion people before they found out that several thousand were getting ill or dying. That's a pretty stout proportion. So it, it's, it's a, it's a large number of people, but it's, it's just very lucky for the tough, for the population that they didn't end up vaccinating, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people by the time they found this stuff out, they, they've got lucky in that they still were continuing these viral challenges. So that's really the, the, the uh, kind of primer there. What this should tell you is that you first have to develop the vaccine. That's going to take some time. And then you're going to need at least 12 months for the trials to happen, phase one and phase two, uh, where they do you know the uh, one-week challenge, one-month challenge, three-month challenge, six-month challenge, 12-month challenge. You have to wait at least that much time for these things to happen. There really isn't a way to short-circuit that. That's why when you get an outbreak, it's going to be at least 12 to 18 months before you get a vaccine. The only reason why we can do vaccination for the the common cold or not common for the flu seasonally, and you see these these vaccines pop up about a month into the season, is because we understand the flu so well. For coronaviruses, we've been trying to make vaccine, and uh, you know, in science, we've been trying to make vaccine. Um, for about 25 years. The long and short of it is basically that it's just too new every time. Like the, yeah, so the mutations are just too great. It changes too much to really, for us to have something, that. right? It's not just that. It's also the fact that there isn't this lasting immunity. It goes away after a year or two. That's actually one of the reasons why humans get sick so often from the common cold when it is coronavirus that is the infecting agent. It's because you lose the immunity to the thing. So, it can come back and get you again. So that, that what I should tell you is that it doesn't have to mutate very quickly if you don't keep the immunity for it to come back every couple of years. Uh, so so uh, moving forward on that, the idea behind this is that you have this uh, this need for a vaccine. The vaccine is going to come, you know, between one and two years after the thing shows up. Um, the immunity doesn't last necessarily for very long. So the, the immunity for the vaccine might last longer. It might last less time. We, uh, we've seen so far that the immunity from the vaccine vaccine has lasted at least several months, which is great, great news. That means that it's also hasn't shown much, uh, for enhancement effect. This is among the like 30 plus candidates that are out there right now. Oh, just in general. Uh, yeah. So, so most, most of the ones that have persisted through trials so far, are showing just very yeah so the, the 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 one those that have gone through trials so far the ones that have been kept in trial 
uh, and that's as to my understanding is a, you know around thirty or so of them. Um, they are showing promise, which is excellent news for us. That means that so far there hasn't been an enhancement effect either, which is much bigger news because SARS showed that with the uh, vaccine developed in China. That's why basically vaccines stopped for that disease uh, beyond the fact that they weren't infecting, uh, people weren't getting infected by it anymore. We got lucky it mutated out of infecting humans. So a fluke of nature. Uh, we're seeing what right now would have happened had that not happened. So um, what this should tell you is that Russia coming out and saying they have a vaccine right now is weird. Um, so registering a vaccine uh, with with the WHO and so on, that basically says that they have a vaccine they're considering ready for dissemination. Well, what they say and, is that this particular vaccine has uh, passed their uh, phase one and two trials in early August. That's what they say. That's that's what it means. Yes, but they so and there is no phase three trial. But well, I guess the phase three trial is going to be the rollout, right? Phase three always happens, and it is always the rollout. So if you didn't, if you're wondering why phase three is not always mentioned, usually it is the uh, the post dissemination. So they do follow up studies, obviously, for you know decades if need be after uh, dissemination of of, um, of a particular medication or vaccine or what have you. So uh, Viox is a good example of this. Phase three trial demonstrated that there was heart issues. That's why they pulled it from the market. Hmm. Yeah, it was actually a yeah no no I understand actually I'm rather familiar that with that one. specifically yeah so um, so that that was just a, that was a big one that I figured you might have some familiarity with people who don't know Vioxx was a um, uh, opioid medication that was used to treat pain and a safer pain it, pill if you will they found in phase three that safety was not exactly what it was uh, not exactly one of its strong suits it was causing a, a higher proportion of uh, people to get heart attacks. Which is not good. Uh, generally, not a safe thing. No, not at all. So, so uh, back to the the Russia vaccine. Um, it'd be great, I, you know. Fingers crossed that it actually is a vaccine that works well, and you know, fingers crossed again that we uh, we end up with vaccines that have no enhancement, lasting immunity, and work very well, and everybody wants to have them. I would not trust a vaccine that has not gone through at least twelve months. This is my personal view on that because the the propensity, the potential rather for uh, enhancement effect especially with a disease that's a novel virus, uh, that's driven by a novel virus. Um, it's really important to have the vaccine kind of hammered down with a long-term trial that's going to demonstrate the efficacy and safety before you really push it out to the public. And Russia, I can tell that they're, you know, one, they're really pissed off at China, but two, they're right next to them. So they're trying to, to hedge their bet here and get themselves protected from this new uh, this new neighbor that they hate. Uh, so, but what's really going on with this vaccine that is is it's coming out too quickly. Um, that's not a good thing. So, if that gets disseminated to the public and they basically have a China 2.0, um, a lot of people are going to die from that, which is bad. But again, like I said, fingers crossed, it's going to be an effective vaccine that helps people. If it turns out that it is something that is effective, that'd be great. Uh, for great news for everyone else, you know, hopefully that we could become on better terms with them. Yeah, stroke of luck for the world, uh, honestly, if it is. Yeah, I don't care who gets the vaccine first, as long as it's actually going to help people. 
Well, but again, like I said, 12 months is kind of my minimum bar for that. So basically, as long as China doesn't come out with it first. Well, I wouldn't trust their vaccine anyway. Well, um, I mean, for any number of reasons. Well, usually they end up using American vaccines that they've either stolen or purchased or they're just making anyway, and they just kind of sell some on the side. You know, on that note, why don't we uh, have a quick little talk about American work and possibly Canadian work that was recently stolen, right, uh, on the lead up to all this craziness. Sure. So, so there's uh, some... Um... So here's here's the interesting thing. So there's two vir- there's two uh, institutes in in Wuhan. There's the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and then there's the university next uh, nearby. And uh, a couple of Canadians, uh, a couple of Canucistanis, decided they're going to send over fresh samples of SARS uh, prior to this. Um, they got caught, obviously, and uh, they got arrested, thankfully. Uh, but unfor- unfortunately, that means that they were shipping internationally without authorization. Um, the precursor to this, uh, pandemic, oh, that was not a good thing. Yeah. And from what I understand, it was from one of the major, um, Canadian, uh, yeah. virology labs. Exactly. It was, it went from a BSL four lab to a BSL four lab. <sighs> so this could be as simple as, uh, an unauthorized transfer and someone got pinned for it, but it's also probable that it was someone getting a kickback from the other lab. Uh, and China really wanted uh, more samples of it to work with. Uh, you know, once you have a virus that has been eliminated from the public, it's kind of hard to get a volunteer to come in and help you spread the virus so that they can, you can get more samples and work with them. So it's not like, you know, for instance, we have that one lab with the smallpox. Uh, it's the only last, it's the last five samples in the world, and they're not going anywhere. Uh, the fact that they exist is kind of a small miracle in the first place. But we're not exactly going to get more smallpox samples if someone wants to work with it. No, so the same true. thing said here. Um, SARS was not exactly active in the population. There weren't more samples to go around. So people who had samples that were still around, uh, those samples are kind of precious as a resource. You're not making more of them. And there's always the, the possibility, if you do make more of them, that you're going to have mutations. And so they wouldn't be valid anymore. And you can always gene sequence and find that post hoc, but it's not going to help you. Yeah, I don't right. think we're... Of experiments, that is. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I don't think we're exactly at the place where we can just go and rebuild something like that from the ground up. Well, so that's the thing, is we kind of could, but it would be really expensive. Uh, and you certainly wouldn't be able to build the protein sheath around it. You could remake the DNA. But that's about it. So oh. anyway, uh, so here's here's the working theory I have on what was going on as far as uh, the release of this stuff. So the horseshoe bat... Uh, that they were they were studying in these labs. Uh, that there there was a, a a breakout of a SARS-like virus, uh, a coronavirus in the bat population in caves, but not near Wuhan. So the the idea that uh, a bat from a cave was sold in the market there and caused a viral outbreak is kind of outlandish. But it, you know it's not like it's not possible. Someone could have come in with a bunch of dead bats on a cart and said, "Here you go." But it's it's not likely. Very much not likely. Uh, usually they have locally sourced meats that they're selling there. You know, they have some exotic stuff, but usually the stuff that comes from further away is more exotic uh, or, or mass produced and not like some guy went to a bat cave. So that said, the Institute, the, uh, the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology was studying the, um, uh, the, this viral outbreak in the bat population. So my working theory here is that they did an 
um, added function research. So they were looking at uh, enhanced uh, viral activity or enhanced uh, uh, viral um, efficacy in the body. And so what the reason why they do this kind of research is actually to make better vaccines. Uh, you make something that is more recognizable to the body. Oftentimes, these are things that are going to attack the body more easily, uh, thus making the virus much more dangerous for the person who's doing the research, obviously. Uh, but generally speaking, when you do this and you make a vaccine from it, the human body will recognize the pathogen, the crippled pathogen, much more quickly, much more effectively. And as long as you have enough of the other features on the virus still intact, um, this basically means that the the correct virus will still be recognized, but it will be recognized more easily by the human body because the human body is able to recognize this crippled version that's kind of mutated a little bit much more easily. So basically, it'll still get the right guy at the end, but it's being uh, it's kind of being poked by a sharper stick with a you know more jagged stick to get better attention. So all that said, um, it's my. My guess is that some worker, some technician cleaning up after the fact became patient zero by exposing themselves to um, a deceased animal in the lab. And then they were the one who passed on the virus to the person they met, say, at the market just a couple miles away uh, when they decided to sell the bats under the uh, table, which is a known thing to happen there. It's not like this is any question about it. That, that practice of selling dead test animals is very well established. Um, whether or not that is the vector for the virus entering into the population is still kind of up in the air, but we're not going to get a clear question, a clear answer on that question. Probably um, ever. Probably ever. This is kind of the same thing that happened with SARS the first time around. We, a lot of stuff was hidden and it's still kind of a mystery. We're just dealing with the aftermath. So, uh, my guess is that patient zero was the dipshit who decided to sell dead test animals and that they made patient one. Um, the person who they shook hands with and exchanged money with. Uh, my guess is that the bats that were sold were probably cooked right away and that nobody got the virus from the bat. You know, I, my guess is that because you're, you're boiling water to make the soup and you put the bat in and the bat's deceased, the bat gets cooked, they eat the bat and the bats just cook meat. So the virus would be denatured and killed basically at that point. Um, so it's, it's probably a human to human transmission from day one. Uh, after that, obviously it's spread around in the wet market, probably hand to hand contact and probably in the air, uh, cause it is an airborne virus. No, um, you've heard about the, um, and it's probably why it's spread around the city so quickly too, because patient zero is probably still living his life in the city just fine. And people just didn't realize that they're passing by someone who was infected, but it's also probably why it wasn't as pervasive because it was probably basically one person as a vector at that point. Well, that is entirely possible, but I mean, that that doesn't necessarily have to be at that one place. I mean, really, the patient zero right. could have... That, that could play itself out from it, anywhere It also in could have Wuhan. been a partner who came in out of nowhere. You know, it could have been some random guy from the rural area who was sitting there exposing himself daily to bats. <laughs> It's it's not like it's kind of unheard of for people to do weird shit in that area. So if by the way, you should, um, the way the rest of China thinks of Wuhan uh, and the, or, or the Ubei province in, uh, entirely is is kind of like the Alabama of uh, of China, except they hate it a lot more. So that that's that's where all the country bumpkins are, if you will. Um, 
they don't really think very highly of the people there. They're mostly expendable, but they have a city, so and it's, it has good commerce, and it's one of the ghost cities that got populated over time. So that's um, that's basically you can think of that as, as a large population of people that the rest of China could uh, couldn't be fucked to bother with. Well, I guess at least they're uh, getting some use out of those cities. Well, it's one of the reasons there's a BSL four lab there. It is cynical, but it is pretty much obvious. <sighs> well, at least Umbrella Corp isn't in that city. They're what aren't they? <laughs> like the next city over? No, no, no. They're, they're just a little further away. It's and that is the Wuhan Institute of Virology. No, yeah, there. I, I legitimately think umbrella. there is actually a uh, perfume company in that city that uses the Umbrella Corp logo, but it's blue oh, instead of red. Well, no. No, no, no. The, the Wuhan Institute of Virology's logo is the frickin' umbrella, but it's green. It's like a, a deep green. <sighs> 2020. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now we just gotta get the whole cast over there and we can get the super soldiers flying around. Yay. Oh. Yeah, wouldn't that, wouldn't that just complete things perfectly, right? Uh, I don't even want to know what they're working on in their, in their laboratories because they are probably uh, probably have something like that cooking up at this very moment anyway. Yeah, so uh, so basically, we should look forward to a vaccine probably in uh, in the middle of the summer next year. One of the great things that's been done um, by FDA this time around. Uh, so this is this is kind of a, a you know you could give you could give Trump the credit for this because he's been doing a lot of good deregulation stuff. So cutting red tape where it needs to be, but this is also more on the FDA and the CDC. So they should kind of get the, the credit first, if you will. Um, they have cut the regulation that requires you to go through a complete phase two before you start mass production because mass production has to be certified in order for it to be just, uh, ready for distribution, uh, distribution. And, uh, what this means is that after phase one, they can start production, which means that by the end of phase two, assuming that of course the phase two is successful by the end of phase two, the vaccine will be in supply and ready for distribution to everybody. So it'll be there when the phase two completes instead of having to wait um, about a, a month or so for the production to ramp up and for everyone to get the vaccine. So, you know, the whole question of who gets it first, uh, instead of having to answer that question. So, um, so cynically, so, you know, assuming such a restricted supply, you now have, well, you just need more people to give the shots. Uh, so people will line up to get them. Uh, unfortunately, that means you'll have a new kind of a new form for exposure for the uh, freaking uh, virus just to get the vaccine. Uh, so basically, my recommendation there is to just kind of take five minutes and wait and let some people go get the damn vaccine first. Well, when the lines new technology. Are, you know, with when the lines are a little bit uh, a little bit uh, smaller, then you can go get your vaccine because you just Think of it the way that the toilet paper went earlier. There's going to be that panic at the beginning. And there really is no opportunity to go out there and get the thing kind of ahead of time this time around. It's not like toilet paper where you can pick up some extra early if you can see something over the horizon. It's going to be, here's the date when it's finally available. And then everybody's going to want it. So my recommendation is to avoid the crowds because that's something that Fauci does get right. Um, anytime you have a concentration of people that's going to be where you have an enhanced spread of the virus. That's, that's the thing that's driving it is, is more people in the same place at the same time. Well, that's just kind of a given with this thing. Yeah. 
it, it's 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 virology 101 you know for the spread of stuff it's epidemiology 101 you know you have to have people in contact in some way for you to have spread of the virus so basically my my suggestion here is when, when the virus when the, not when the virus comes out when the vaccine comes out uh, spend a little bit of time waiting for the crowds to dissipate then go in and get the vaccine you want to maintain the social distancing and have the masks on, et cetera, et cetera. These are things that are actually straightforward and should be done. You're not submitting to China if you wear a, a, a freaking face mask. And you know? you're also not uh, depersonalizing yourself to the new world order either. So just wear the damn mask. And again, this is an adult decision you should be making. It's kind of like looking across. It's looking both ways when you cross the street. There's not a law that requires you to do that, but you should also do it. So if you're, you know, take the personal responsibility here. If we're a nation of adults, we should be able to do this without having some dipshit in the seat tell us that we have to or else. I like to think of it this way. I think of it um, for any freedom-minded individual. To say that I'm not going to wear a mask is the same that I'm not going to carry a gun. Because there are police out there, and they'll protect me, and I don't need to protect myself, so why would I carry a gun? Fair it's enough. the very, very same argument as not wearing a mask. So, there that another, another take on that. Um, in Florida, we have a law called Click It or Ticket, uh, colloquially. And uh, basically, this, this was born out of the 90s, where people were not wearing their seatbelts often enough, and so they passed a law saying that if... Uh, cop sees you without a seatbelt on, that is now prima facie to, to pull you over. And if they see no uh, seatbelt being worn when they pull you over, that is an additional charge on a ticket. So that law has not gone away. What they should tell you is that if they do pass laws, if they get to the point where they have the evidence of people not wearing masks to protect themselves and they get a law passed saying that there should be uh, some you know some time period they can declare where you are required to wear masks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How uh, how often have you seen a regulation come into effect like that that has ever gone away? Pretty much never. So um, that's some of the, that's oddly enough in the financial sector that's some of the red tape that Trump has been cutting, which has actually been doing a good thing for a lot of businesses. Um, but, but it's very rare that you're going to see a rollback on regulation like that. So. Basically, not feeding the fire there is kind of the, the point. You don't want to give people these, these um, you want to give it some asshole who's not going to listen to these laws in the first place and do whatever the hell they want. You're not going to give them the power to tell you what to do like that just by protecting yourself. So well, that's, well, that's, 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 that's actually point. a really, uh, that's a wily way of considering it as well. You know, if you do wear the mask as inconvenient or as uncomfortable as it may be, what you're doing is you're protecting your rights by not giving them a chance to take them. Yeah, it's the same way I would say that open carrying in a state that allows that, you know, that, which I shouldn't have to say, but there it is. In a state that allows open carrying, I'd say that open carrying is, it's not a, you know, like a civic responsibility every day, but as far as flexing your rights when you have the chance to, that's the way to do it. Protecting yourself just by a common sense measure of having your firearm on you. Absolutely. That's, um, that's good advice. I know. The same way I'd say that protect your First Amendment, you should openly criticize people in public if they screw up. Absolutely. 
Now, now, there wasn't an internet back when that was invented, so, you know, I can't be certain that that really applies to what we're talking about here. You know, it's so great that you mentioned that, because there are some, some, uh, um, what was it, a sports journalist or whatever that was, that was talking about, uh, what was it, uh, these, these firearms weren't around when the, the founders, blah, 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 and this guy, um, restricted the comments on his tweet, which I thought was just such a, a perfect resemblance of, uh, their, um, their respect for the Constitution. You know, the amendments for me, but not for the... Oh, I've got it right here, actually, because I sent out my own comment about it. That was uh, <laughs> J.A. Adonde. Yeah, that dumbass. <laughs> How can high-capacity magazines be covered by the Second Amendment when they didn't exist when the Second Amendment was written? Yeah, the funny thing is that uh, multiple round magazines did exist at that time, and he's just an idiot. Yeah, I... He's just a, a complete moron who doesn't understand the history of firearms in, in any, comp any capacity. Or even really kind of basic history because if yeah. we want to get right down well you know i'll just read my reply or i should say my uh quote tweet because yeah. it sums my position up really well it said look at this idiot and laugh mr adonde has never heard of lewis and clark and he has never heard of prussia i'll wager he didn't know that the revolver is more than 200 years old because well, had a Gatlin gun by the time we got to the Civil War, effectively. We had it was it was hand rotated, but we had that kind of automation already in place. A mechanized gun existed at that time. Uh, the Puckle well gun, if you want to look it up, by the way. We had multi round mags well before that. We had multi round clips well before that. So and to say on that, that note, on that anyway. note, let me uh, let me discuss this uh, my sure. thinly veiled reference here. Uh, Lewis and Clark carried a rifle called, uh, depending on your pronunciation, the Girardoni or Girardoni rifle. It was also the main arm of the Prussian army, which was essentially at that time in the world renowned as the most uh, effective, well-armed, and well-trained fighting yeah. force in the world. That's uh, why the Americans and the British con um, contracted them. Yeah, absolutely. So this uh, rifle... It would, by modern definition, be a, you could call it a straight-pull, suppressed, magazine-fed rifle. That would be a fairly accurate representation. It fires with a uh, burst of air, as opposed to uh, shots, and later versions of it had as many as 30 rounds, believe it or not. So, I mean, we're, we're pretty much right there, and this is, you know, this is pre uh, constitution, even. So, yeah. these arguments are really quite moot and ridiculous on their face. And usually, usually proposed by brainlets like uh, like this sports journalist who doesn't like comments on his tweets. And, indeed, indeed. I don't like them at all. I can't really handle the bant. Free speech say. for me, but not for thee, is kind of the, the name of the game here. And I can totally understand that this is a private individual operating on a private platform. But if you're going to live by the free speech principle, then you should probably die by it, too. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be a journalist, come on now. That's disingenuous. As I said to some wokelet before, you should live by the sword you sharpen. Yeah, lest you fall on it, right? Yep. Might end up happening anyway, as we're seeing with uh, journalists these days. Probably well, be I'll, a better I'll, thing I'll... for them to fall on them. Of their own I, made sure I, uh, I made sure to put journo in quotes whenever I was talking about that dumbass. 
you know, someone immediately pointed out in the response uh, to, to my comment on the matter. Uh, he's a sports journalist. And I'm amazed he held him to any standard. Mm, fair, fair. But I mean, anymore, you kind of take the smart comments where you can get them, which, ah, Jesus, they're incredibly rare. Yeah, so we've wandered away from COVID now. Yeah, well, it was bound to happen. I mean, we discussed uh, basically just starting on this one vaccine. Now, we yeah. can come back into this with, uh, let me see here. I was wondering about, um, let me throw a topic of discussion out at you. Are you familiar with bacteriophages? Yes. Okay. Now, I did some initial research months ago on this, and... You're talking about phage therapy. Indeed I am. Indeed I am. There was a, a phage therapy that was developed for SARS, the initial outbreak, uh, that yes. was based on a genetically modified uh, phage, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And I have wondered if that might be a viable candidate, I mean, because this is SARS. It's a different you know, right. iteration. So the, SARS is SARS, right? So that technology, well, that's, that's the thing. If SARS was SARS and that was all we had to worry about, then we wouldn't have to be talking at all about the spike protein that has a modification on it. So it's not quite as simple as that, but it, it is an experimental therapy. That should be very clear. Uh, it's only experimental therapy. It has been successful, wildly successful in some cases. But every time it is modified to accommodate a new uh, a new viral strain, um, it is always a gamble. Uh, it may or may not attack it properly, uh, so it might actually not clear the system at all. That's basically the worst that will happen, though, is, is bacteriophages are, are laser-focused, very specific in their attack vector. So they, it's not like you can get a bacteriophage into your body and attacks the virus a couple times, mutates, and then kills you. Um, it's possible it can trigger an immune reaction in your we body. We should actually probably just pause right here and do a yeah. quick explanation because there's a bunch of people who are going to have absolutely no idea what a bacteriophage is. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Go you've got um, uh, antibiotics. They're a broad-spectrum... It's a carpet bomb, if you like. A bacteriophage is a completely different vector of approach on a virus. What it is, it's another living thing that has kind of evolved oh, beside the virus. To mm -hmm. no, well, hold on, we have to stop. I help you here. A bacteriophage is a virus that eats bacteria, thus the name bacteriophage. And they normally don't go after things like viruses. No. It's possible you can trigger them to go after something like an infected cell, or in the case of MRSA, to go after a, a different bacteria. Yeah, as a matter of fact, a lot of what we're talking about here is brand new. They haven't really been used in this way until the past decade. And yep. uh, just a real, real quick primer. Bacteriophages uh, developed as a way to fight infections in um, Iron Curtain and Eastern Front areas after World War during and after World War II due to a lack of uh, access to certain Western medicines, antibiotics, and that sort of thing. That's a really, really quick primer. It's worth investigating and worth a discussion on yes. its own, but it's a really interesting technology. And oh, it works for quite a few things that... Uh, superbugs, as a matter of fact. Yeah. It has shown as a really effective tool in treating things that we've just about given up on. So MRSA being a, a prime candidate of this. 
Um, MRSA has been treated very successfully with bacteriophages at this point, just not in a way that is going to make it a uh, first line of attack. Again, um, if the body recognizes it because it is a virus and the body sees, you know, trillions of new little vir virons coming into the uh, body, it'll just freak out the same way that it does with any other novel virus, which actually I should go ahead and mention uh, now as well. A novel virus, by the way, means that the human body has seen nothing like it before. And that's usually a bad thing because the body will usually reacts very violently against things that it doesn't have any basis for recognition for. So most of the common cold viruses, the reason your body doesn't do what it's doing to SARS-2 uh, right now with the COVID-19 um, um, disease, the reason it doesn't go haywire like that is because it's seen the cold several times before. The same with the flu. Usually the flu is not going to cause such a violent reaction because your body has seen it before. So that's one of the differences here. When you have a novel virus or a, some novel pathogen that comes into the body, it tends to react very strongly. And it's usually the immune system that's doing a lot more of the damage than, uh, than the actual pathogen. As a matter of fact, that's where a lot of the um, late-term trouble in people on ventilators are running into issues. It's basically the immune system tearing their lungs apart. Yeah. So you get this inflammation that occurs around the alveoli, which is the little air sacs where the actual gas exchange occurs with the blood. Um, so at the very end of that fractal network of tubes that goes down, uh, that, we, that is, comprises the lung tissue, uh, you have these little tiny air sacs, and they're surrounded by um, a very thin membrane that allows pretty close contact with the, uh, with the capillaries next to them. So that's where the direct exchange of oxygen between the air and the blood occurs is through this little thin membrane. You know, it's only uh, a couple tens of cells thick. So when that area gets inflamed, you can think of it as, um, if you've ever seen a Florence flask, it looks like a sphere with a little neck on it. Um, so that's that's kind of like the archetypal mad scientist flask that's sitting on top of a Bunsen burner in his little underground lab. Um, that's a, Florence, a Florentine flask, or a Florence flask. Um, so that's actually pretty close to the shape of an alveoli uh, sac. So the, when, the, when the tissue around it gets inflamed, it can close off that throat into the sac, into the air sac. And it also starts filling up on the inside with lymph or, mu or pus or mucus, um, you know, a combination thereof, uh, while it's fighting off an invader. So this is not good for air exchange. This is actually the primary reason why the, um, the people who are, on, uh, who are on ventilators who are intubated uh, are stuck that way is because the air has a hard time exchanging gases with the blood through this kind of closed, it's this constricted neck that goes in and then a whole bunch of gunk in the way on the inside of this little air sac. And so with, uh, my own, with, that's bad. And with my own research, I can actually add a little bit to that. Uh, from what I understand, the damage that this does to the soft tissue in the area it um, it can be it's exasper well it's exacerbated as well by being artificially inflated. So what this is doing is yeah it can be permanent because in and of itself it can. We don't really even know about that, but that's another discussion. But uh, the exacerbation can be caused by basically overstressing the area or overinflating a balloon that has. Uh, imagine you've got an old balloon that's been sitting in the sun for a long time. 
You know, that's basically what's happened to your lungs in some cases here. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that are really bad off. So the inflammation causes swelling, and that goes outside and inside uh, Mm -hmm. from the the original dimensions of the uh, the alveolar sac. So what happens is when it squeezes in, it's going to be pushing against the fluid that's building up inside there. That's bad. If it push when it's pushing out, it's also causing more distance from the air, you know, air and fluid that's hanging out on the inside of the air sac. And this will be blood. your this will be your drowning and phlegm kind of sensation, or your nearly yeah. choking, unable to breathe despite nothing else being wrong kind so of sensation. This is why you get this is why people have O2 sats below eighty, which is by the way, if you have an O2 sat below ninety, you're already uh, in a, you're already really bad off. If you have an O2 sat below eighty, you're you're feel like you're you feel like you've just run a very long distance and you're uh, kind of gasping for air. So this is why people have this kind of really bad state uh, before they even get put on the ventilator. And the ventilators are pushing in higher concentrations of oxygen, which is also, by the way, not good for you. And that by itself will cause, uh, in some in, in some some degrees here, it causes a bit more inflammation. But you know that's also kind of the purpose of hyperbaric chambers is to undo inflammation. So it's a little bit. It's yeah, a little, there, there are of, ways that this could be done better. Well, it's, well this is this is what, what we're learning. Better, that it's really bad for long term to be stuck on one of these things for a whole host of reasons. This being one of them. Indeed. And on that note, you can find uh, oximeters really cheap, uh, like $10, $20 maybe, for one that will work. It's not going to be the greatest, but it can give you a rough idea well, of where so you stand. A, a basic infrared um, oximeter, uh, those those go for anywhere from 5 to $15, and the technology is so darn mature. Like people, people do this stuff uh, like with an Arduino as a high school project these days. They're They're very well understood, and they're very easy to make. So yeah, uh, so don't feel bad spending twenty dollars on something at yeah. Walmart. It's absolutely fine. As a matter of fact, they've got one for ten, uh, fifteen. Yeah, ten dollars and fifty cents. If I could read my numbers right, for ten fifty, they've got one at Walmart listed online here. Yeah, so they're 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 very cheap, very common, very readily available. They'll tell you your uh, your your current um, beats per minute, your current SpO two. So that's your uh, your blood oxygen content. And SPO that the um the your O2 sat should be hopefully you know you should be at, at like 95 or above. You should most people are going to be hovering around 97, 98. And like mind just, if you're a smoker, your numbers are going to be off. Yes, they're going to be lower. You're gonna you still should be above 90 though. So like uh any you know as low as I would say 92 is probably going to be still normal for a smoker. If yeah. you're a heavy smoker. Yeah, so keep that in mind and maybe consider picking one up because they're cheapest chips. Also, if you have COPD, hopefully you've probably already got one of these hanging out at home and you already understand your own situation on this because that's when your OTSAT will be lower. Yeah, uh, if you've so got COPD, you're at you're definitely falling into the at-risk category, so let's just hope that if, uh, that if you're <laughs> listening, you're taking every precaution. So, speaking of, we actually uh, spoke before... Uh, some months back, actually, on the precautions we're taking, and I'd like to kind of go over mine so that I sure. can share them with people because I think I've got a pretty good routine. I'm just mm-hmm. going to go through what I would go through on my shopping day, which is uh, that's what I did today. On my uh, Saturdays, I go out and do basically all my uh, all my outside stuff other than work kind of in one day so that I can 
minimize, uh, you know, my exposure sure. because the world's a little dangerous right now. So I go out, I do my shopping. That being said, I've got, um, it's a little paranoid, yes, but I've got a set of copper line clothes and the copper ions, I know, but they uh, keep it smelling nice and they should cut some lingering stuff that might sit on there after a time. But anyway, for that point, I've got an outside outfit. I've got uh, my outside gloves. I've got my mask. And then I head out the door. I get what I'm going to get. I get home. I, uh, you know, take everything off, disinfect myself, wash. I leave all my groceries, what have you, in my uh, front room. I've got a UVC bulb. By the way, let me just preface this UVC thing so that people understand. Uh, UVC, um, I'm going to be real general here, but you're effectively staring at an arc weld and in the presence of an arc weld when a UVC bulb is going off. So don't look at it and try not to let it get on your skin. And I don't mean like slag. I don't mean sparks. I mean, the light itself is bad for you. It is cancer light. It is horrible. It kills everything. It mutates things. It's awful. That's why it is great for this purpose. It uh, theoretically should, from my current understanding, UVC in the, uh, the far wavelengths is effective in about 15 minutes. You don't get uh, your nooks and crannies. Oh, but... please do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so, um, UVC, that's going to be your um, your kind of 260 to 280 nanometer range, or, well, 260 to 290, uh, as far as the lights are concerned. So it's not the actual band, but that's usually where the lights fall in, as, as a, a lot of them are like 265, 280, or 285. And it's a cold, uh, unearthly blue. So um, these are basically the original phosphor tubes that were used for fluorescent lights, except by design, they do not have any of the phosphor coating on the inside of the glass. Now, if you also get one that has quartz instead of glass, it's going to let out what's called vacuum UV or UVV, or sometimes also called VUV. This is the stuff that produces ozone. And that's going to be down in the, uh, the one whatever it was uh, nanometer range, but it's a separate band. And that is a higher, uh, a higher frequency, and it is more dangerous uh, to be around. But the good thing is that it produces ozone and air. So that's kind of an added Which benefit. of it itself with... will also be a disinfectant of a kind. It's an oxidizer, but... Yeah, it, it. so they're both very, very, very... All, all three, I should say. UVV, UVC, and ozone are all very effective at killing off any bugs that are going to be hanging around. So any pathogen, so that includes any protozoans, you know, any bacteria, any viruses, all that good stuff is going to get wiped out as long as it can get onto it and as long as it has time. Now, I actually, um, so someone came to me uh, talking about uh, the, the uh, stuff that was going on in a hospital uh, and the methods that were being used for disinfection of masks and uh, uh, had me look at some of the resources and I was able to also get some good data out of this. Uh, this is a safety guy for my lab. Uh, I've been walking further and further away from that duty at this point uh, as I'm wrapping things up. So um, the basically the findings from, and this is backed by CDC at this point, uh, so the findings are, were that uh, for a mask, you can basically give it a maximum lifetime dose of 100 joules per square centimeter. 
and that a uh, dose of between 0.5 and 1.5 joules per square centimeter is sufficient to kill everything on the surface. So that's great news. That also suggests a significantly larger number of uses than you can actually get out of a mask. Just saying that right now. That's just anywhere from 50 to 200 uses as long as you stick to that dosing. Yep. You should not do that because other things are going to happen before that uh, that cause problems. And this is this is uh, 100 joules per square centimeter is the maximum dose that was used. Um, that you, you still passed a fit test. So that means that the mask didn't let anything through the way it was supposed to. And I don't remember if they stopped at that point or if like they just kind of stopped at a round number or if that was the point at which things broke down. But you should just assume that that's the point of things which things broke down. You're realistically only going to get about 10 to 20 uses, 20 if you're very careful about things. This is in part due to the fact that when you breathe, you're expelling warm, humid air and that that stuff is going to condense onto the mask. So aside from potentially growing some really grody stuff inside there over time, if you're not sterilizing it properly, you're also going to be disturbing the fibers. This is the same reason you do not wet your mask because surface tension as this, the mask dries is going to pull the fibers on the inside around. And the reason why these masks work so well is because they have a very uniform distribution of very small holes. And when you pull on those fibers while it's drying, it spreads that peak out. And that peak then crosses the barrier for you know the, the boundary for the minimum acceptable pore size, or sorry, maximum acceptable pore size. Uh, and that's what actually destroys the mask if you get it wet. So it's not just it's not the fact that the water's doing something to it while it's on it. It's when it dries, it pulls the fibers around. It is the literal mechanical actions of the yeah. water. So it keep them dry. Same thing with alcohol too. So it's not like you can just pick the right liquid and do it, and you know, by minimizing surface tension, it's it's always going to happen. And when you breathe out, that water vapor is going to go through the mask. Uh, and it's a, it's eventually going to do kind of the same thing. Now, it doesn't happen anywhere near as fast, so even 20 uses might be conservative on that limit, but I would do a hard stop at 20 uses. So if you go out in the rain, that's a great time to, to use the mask its last time. Oh, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, so, once it's... Now, as it's wet, it's not specifically going to be worse. It might be. But as it dries, it... I, well, now, this is also... I should say... As long as you can breathe wet, through it. Wet is the wrong choice of words. If it's wet, you're not going to be able to breathe through it. And yeah. it's also going to be starting to break down. If there's some dampness in the air or it's got a drop or two on it, it's going to be fine. Basically, as long as you through it, you're going to be okay. If, if it gets saturated wet, then you should not have it on anyway. Because uh, that's then probably going to kill you. Yeah, you're getting into the territory of where people are <laughs> saying you actually shouldn't be wearing a mask for these reasons because it. Now, the all... other thing is, if it's that wet outside, you're probably also not going to get the virus just by breathing. Uh, it is airborne, but that should also tell you something. If most most of the time, viral transmission does not happen during the rain. No, like you're, you're just you're if just nothing not else. Get it's knocking it to the ground. Exactly. But if, now you let me. Touch but you should also be comfortable breathing. Yeah. Now let me finish my, because uh, that was a worthwhile interlude, but let me sure. go ahead and finish my uh, routine here. So I get in, I uh, put on the UV for 15 minutes. I come and give everything uh, a 90 degree turn. Say I've got a box. I flip it over in the mm -hmm. other direction as well. 
so that the whole other side gets that. And I'll usually uh, set things at a diagonal so that I can try and hit three sides of a box. Or uh, set, uh, like a jar of peanut butter, I would first set upside down, then grab it by the top and just flip it over directly to the other side so that you get the full thing. And this is something you can do anywhere. You can find these lights on eBay. You have to be super careful, again, like uh, like we've been telling you. They're super dangerous. It is death light, so don't let it get on you. Don't look at it, but know that it's your don't ally. You know, fire is awesome. Fire is freaking great. It has helped build the world. It will burn the shit out of you. So That's actually a very good analogy here because this stuff will burn the shit out of you too. Oh, quite literally, yeah. It, you can go blind. You absolutely can go blind. It will burn your retinas straight out. I have a, way, I have a good example here on this. Uh, so a, a typical 25-watt um, fluorescent tube that you find, say, on eBay or whatever, if you held it out at arm's reach, that is about eight times brighter than the sun if you look at it. Yeah, and now it's not going to look that way to your Absolutely. eye because the frequency of the uh, the wave, but it, it absolutely is. And it might sound like I'm harping on this a little bit and Craig's harping on this a little bit, but we're really not. It's incredibly dangerous, so be safe. Now, and if you are and understand that, you can be safe with it. It's like welding, it's like playing with fire, yeah. it's like fireworks, cool. you know, it's like a gun... You know, if you're careful, it's fine, but it is dangerous as dangerous can be. So go in with that understanding. I'll tack this on to that as well. Um, you know, proper safety and so on is very important. I, I kind of have to say that on your job title alone, but like, just, just, uh, it's very important. And I would not recommend using this stuff, um, this unless you have to, like during a pandemic. It's really, it's overkill any other time. You should just do the basics. Because the basics are going to be the same for any of these kind of viral outbreaks. You know, wash your hands, don't touch your face, clean clean your frequently used surfaces frequently, uh, that kind of stuff. Everything you do that you usually do for the cold or for the flu during flu season, just do exactly that and then add in wearing a mask. That's going to cover the vast majority of your exposure cases and keep you safe. The UV stuff is extremely useful for this kind of thing because it's so hands-off. You're not increasing your exposure by cleaning things. Yes, this is a very right now kind of solution. Or if this is a pandemic solution, this is not yeah. your this is not your normal go to. Let me make you aware of that. This is not this it's, is extreme. It's an addition. It's, now, a, it's a slight addition, and it's very cheap and easy. That's the main thing here. It is. So go to your local Habitat Restore, Goodwill, what have you. Find a cheap, tall lamp. Go on eBay, search for a UVC bulb. You want to look for one that produces ozone. It'll just search uh, UVC, O2, or ozone. You'll be able to find it. It's not going to be expensive. They make them that fit in standard uh, U.S. Yep. and international. Uh, they make them that fit in every bulb configuration. So you can just put it into a standard outlet. Now, so for standard outlets, you're going to be looking for E26 and E27. We'll say that, and it'll, you'll, it'll be very obvious when you look at it. Yeah, it's going to look like a fluorescent bulb. It's, it's literally what it is, just no phosphor. Yeah, yeah, clear. So it it looked, well, I'd say lab glass, but, you know, that's something that not a lot of people are going to understand the reference. So right. to finish out then, I put everything in there. I give it the spin and the turn, but that's as time goes on. So immediately I drop things off out front. 
I uh, take the things that need to be refrigerated or that I'm going to have for dinner tonight, like I did just a minute ago. I take them into the kitchen, I lay them on my glass stovetop, and then I hit them with uh, a Clorox wipe, or I just spritz them with my um, alcohol peroxide blend, which is plenty adequate. Uh, by the way, if you can't, there's a lot of places that are doing closeout deals on uh, the alcohol that, uh, uh, like production companies, like brewing companies and uh, liquor companies yeah. made. There's a lot of, cause everything's coming back now. So you can find these blends for cheap. I got a bottle today for just uh five for like a whole 20, like I, I want to say a 36 ounce bottle or yeah. might even be a whole liter. Either way, cool. it's, it's an excellent amount. It's already pre-blended with uh, 82% alcohol. Yes, it smells a little bit of grain. What you going to do? But it's pre-blended alcohol peroxide, so it is the ideal solution. If you want to make your own, just buy a bottle of hydrogen peroxide. Buy yourself a bottle of alcohol since you can now. It uh, needs to be 60%. WHO recommends 70%. Personally, I would I go at least, 80, at least 80 well, here, here, let me go ahead and, and help you with this uh, real quick uh, for the alcohol percentages. You want to have, uh, when you're, if you're dealing with isopropyl alcohol, the sweet spot is 70%. And the reason for that is that you need to have the water present to depolarize the surface membranes to allow stripping to occur. So 100% alcohol is great if you have distilled water to dilute it down because it's just an easier way to, to store your alcohol. But what you really want is the 70 for disinfecting, generally speaking. If you're talking about a cut on your skin, the 100% stuff is going to immediately coagulate your blood and it's going to trap any pathogen you wanted to kill inside blood if you have a cut. So if it's just on bare skin, then then either one of them will kind of work. It's just that the 70% stuff is kind of a better guarantee. Like if you have any kind of small scrapes or anything like that, it'll cover those as well. well it also was, gives you more of it to use. That's the other thing. Well, I was just going to go into that actually. My blend that I use, I ordered a uh, packet of small spray bottles, just uh, small handheld ones that are a little bit bigger than your yeah. thumb. I mix uh, about, uh, what is it? I go about 70% of my alcohol, which I I generally keep 92% for yeah. cleaning and whatever else because it's just better. The cl the more pure it is, the better it is for any of my purposes because I, I keep distilled water as well so I can just take it down. So I blend in about 70% that, about... Mm -hmm. uh, 20% straight hydrogen peroxide blend, which you're going to find in, usually it's going to be like a brown oh, container. And yeah, that's, that's going to contain its own distilled water. So that's going to bring down the concentration and then top it off with distilled water, give it a shake, and you're going to have a really excellent little device for sanitizing about anything. Yeah, that, that, that'll work just fine. So that's my immediate. I've got that as my go-to or a Clorox wipe, same thing. Uh, but this yeah. is going to be a little more economical if you've got the tools available and uh, the means, which now so, you kind of can. So, so I actually have a recommendation for you here. Yeah, go for it. Uh, and this is something you can find pretty easily. It's still on Amazon and everywhere else. And, and this is tested. This is food safe tested. Well, food safe is a strong word for that, but you, you'll get the idea in a second. It's used in the food industry oftentimes uh, as the final step for cleaning. There's a product called Steramine. Um, so if you ever look onto one of those Clorox containers and you see that uh, whole bunch of stuff, uh, you know, blah, 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 benzyl something or another amine, 
Um, that is a quaternary amine, and those are really good as what's called phase transfer catalysts, but basically you should just read the word SOAP. Um, so these quaternary amines, uh, the, the shortened uh, term is uh, um, uh, benzylconium chloride, so uh, or benzethonium chloride, which is a specific benzalkonium chloride. So the, the, all that stuff preceding it is basically the different alkyl chains. So there's these long carbon-carbon chains uh, hanging off the one side. This is basically how it interacts with a fatty acid layer of, uh, say, the outside of a virus or, say, the, uh, the surface of a bacteria. Um, so it's, they're basically, they're, they're like, it's like having regular soap, except these things are effective basically in any, any, anywhere in most concentrations. So, um, B, or BZK rather, I don't know, whatever the heck that was said. So, so BZK is going to be kind of the active ingredient. It, now that's in steramine. The reason it's called steramine because BZK is a quaternary amine. Uh, and it sterilizes stuff. So this is the last step. Usually when you, you put the dishes through the autoclave or whatever they have in the, the kitchen and then at the, at the end you dunk it in the sink full of this blue stuff basically you can get these uh i think it was 45 dollars or so for a, a pack of uh six tablets um i think and they're like 90 ta or 180 or 90 or 180 tablets per bottle each tablet will make a gallon of uh cleaning solution and you can just dip a rag in it and so the wet ones wipes for example um or those little sterilizing wipes you get in a doctor's office the ones that aren't alcohol those are going to have BZK in them. Uh, wet ones, it's it's benzyl, it's benzethonium chloride, but it's basically the same thing. Um, and you'll see that there's a very low concentration that's required. It's mostly just water, but it has a little bit of the soap in it, um, and that's what makes them effective. And so if you can make a gallon of this stuff at a time, now I wouldn't recommend if you're using tap water that you keep it for more than a, a few days. Let's say seven days is a good arbitrary cutoff to throw it out. Um, but you're probably not going to use a whole gallon in a week anyway, unless you're cleaning a lot of stuff. Like if you're if you're operating a small business, um, but this is this is a very cheap and effective way of keeping things clean. But this is a big caveat here, and, and it's one to two tablets per gallon. Uh, one tablet, I, I should say, is probably more than enough. Because um, the big caveat is that it has blue dye in it, which is kind of a I haven't, I haven't like spent a whole lot of time trying to figure out how to get rid of the dye, but I also don't know if I'm going to because it's it's usually not so much of an issue. So use a rag you don't care about if you're going to use it on stuff. And also you may or may not get a slight blue tint over time. So that's kind of the, that's the, the one thing that's kind of a problem with that product is that it has a blue dye in it. Now it makes it very obvious what it's on, which is a good thing. But at the same time, you know, it, you could dye things. If you're if you have dye sensitivities, that's another thing to be, to watch out for. Yeah, that but would the be... good news is it does clean things. Now, it takes a few minutes. Um, that's kind of one of the things they don't tell you about those wipes uh, is that it's not immediately effective on things. The same way those Clorox wipes aren't immediately effective on things. That yeah, quick note on that: any given thing is going to take at least or roughly fifteen seconds before anything has really happened. Yeah. So, if uh, that's alcohol. Yeah. This stuff is like a couple minutes, but it is effective. Well, yeah, just for general reference, because uh, a yeah. lot of people are using hand sanitizer these days, and that's alcohol yeah. and peroxide. So that's you're, you're not immediately safe as far as things go. So yeah. also now, by the time it's dry, <laughs> it probably will be. If by the time it's dry, you are safe. But if you're putting your hand in your mouth while it's wet, 
or if you're touching your face while it's wet, you're putting alcohol all over the place. Probably you probably have some other issues you need to work out if you haven't figured out not to do that. Very possibly, very possibly. So finishing out my routine, I uh, I get in, I immediately clean the other stuff off. You'll notice I still haven't yet washed my hands. I have yep. taken off my outside gloves at this point, and I have uh, put on just some plain hand sanitizer and given my hands a once over just to get uh, give them a minute. Uh, an initial treatment, if you will. That way I feel more comfortable working directly with my groceries or whatever shopping I've got. So then I set everything out after I've done my initial cleaning. Um, I'm not going to say whether I do or don't, but if I were a person that did carry a gun at this time while doing that, I would also, uh, while sanitizing my hands... I would also maybe eject the magazine and make sure the bottom part that's exposed the elements was covered as well. And maybe, you know, the rest of it, anything that might be cut, uh, connected to the outside world or exposed to air might want to see a little bit of that sanitizer as well. Just as you're going over your hands, of course, be careful with your triggers and don't point anything anywhere that you wouldn't want destroyed. But if you were a person that were to carry extra tools outside, now this goes for your phone, too. So, it may seem a little funny, but yes, your phone, too. As you're doing your hand sanitizer routine, pull out your phone. The thing's made to take a little bit of moisture, so it's actually going to be fine with what's on your I would, hands. I would go with wipes if you can, just entirely, because it's, it's, just, it's just a cleanliness issue. It makes less of a mess. True. But you're absolutely right. A little bit of sanitizer is going to be fine. Yeah, and, you know, if you can make it part of your process, all the better, because then you get used to doing things. And when you can make yourself accustomed and get these things into a habit, it's going to make your whole life easier in these trying, crazy times. So here's something to be said about this, and this is entirely, I can entirely speak to this as someone who does safety for a lab. A lot of these procedures and things are going to, to be effectively redundant or pointless a lot of the time the important thing is that if you're always doing it the times where you're going to have an issue it's it's highly effective and it eliminates the threat every layer of protection provides specifically an extra layer that layer of protection should something fail there and you have a fallback that means there's another layer on which for the trouble to fall before it hits you so, so every extra precaution is another defense against this thing. The point here is that you're eliminating risk. And when you eliminate that risk kind of automatically by routine, uh, you don't have to come back and worry about it later. Uh, as long as you're doing things that are effective in the case that you have, say, have, say that you do have a, an external exposure, they have to, to um, worry about touching. You know, say somebody definitely sneezed on that bag you're carrying in, something stupid like that. That routine is going to cover that anyway if you're cleaning all of your materials appropriately upon entry. So, you know, basically just pick your like your laundry room if it's close to the front door or whatever kind of make yourself an airlock. Area. Yeah, that's effectively what it comes down to is have have an uh, have a space where you sterilize things. And then have a limit, like a, just imagine a dotted line somewhere in your house beyond which you require everything to be cleaned before it comes in. Yeah. If you can essentially airlock that entrance area, you can make the rest of your house 
not to call it anything near a clean room, but a much safer environment for you and anyone that comes inside. That also means take off your shoes, because you should be taking off your shoes inside anyway, that's disgusting. But, <laughs> but beyond that, take off your shoes and... Oh, yeah, I, I haven't even finished, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got to still finish my thing, but yeah. yeah take off your shoes not. first thing, because you're tracking who even knows what. That's why, ho- that is, well, I shouldn't say why. That's one of the main reasons why hospitals are so very dangerous, is because you can't clean all those floors at one time, and you are tracking that stuff everywhere by everyone, and it's mixing with everything else, making super bugs like MRSA. <laughs> so, now then, I've uh, cleaned and sanitized my daily equipment. I'm still wearing my watch. I've taken off my gloves. I've taken off my outside gear. I'm uh, now in my undershirt and, uh, you know, boxers. So, I go now. I uh, put another little quick layer of uh, disinfectant on my hands to make sure after having handled all of the things... Anything that remains, I double up on that just in case the layer that was there, which, by the way, uh, hand sanitizer made properly and used properly is effective, not just immediately in getting it off of there, but it does stay with you for a short time. That said, it doesn't hurt to double up, just like we were saying. So I double up again, then I go in and wash my hands thoroughly. You know, there's uh, any number of good videos but you really want to spend a while on your hands more than you normally would. At least it, 20 seconds, please. Yeah. At 20 seconds. Happy yeah. birthday twice. It's a good approximation. And of course, I, as you can imagine, I spend significantly longer. You know, I make sure and get in underneath of my nails and do the whole shebang. But then once that's done, everything that I've handled up till that point has been disinfected once. And then the soap with the uh, proper cleaning is really just kind of the final thing. Then from there, I can, you know, get stuff out of my eyes. And what I'll also do, the uh, the alcohol and peroxide solution, if I'm not immediately going to take a shower, I'll hit, you know, my forearms, I'll hit my face, I'll hit my hair, so that that all gets a layer of disinfectant put on there. And then I'll avoid touching any of those areas until I can get a proper shower. You're peroxiding your hair? Well, it, it's with alcohol and, you know, <laughs> distilled water. Yes, a little bit, but I haven't noticed any color change. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. We'll see how it works out. Yeah, new fashion. Um, yeah, hey, you know, if it works, it uh, works. If it wasn't for the fact that that's probably already taken by people going bold from it. Oh, Alyssa Milano. Alopecia is now one of the sepulchre. Yeah, I know it, it actually really legitimately is, which is uh, which is sad. And um, yeah, there's any so number of things that we're finding about this. Like there's yeah, a so lot of a lot of uh, what, not comorbidities. Um, Sequelae is what they're called. Yeah, but like, what's a word that normal people would know? Sequel. <laughs> Second. Oh, secondary effects. There you go. Yeah. Follow up effects are another thing. Follow on, follow up effects. Yeah. Same thing. So these are these are so what we've what we've kind of determined so far at this point is that it is largely um, a lot of these secondary effects. Uh, Craig, or, or let me have you talk for a quick second. I'm going to grab a coffee and I'll be right back. Sure. 
So a lot of these sequelae um, are, are largely caused by the fact that the uh, virus causes a lot of clotting issues. Uh, so this is one of the reasons why people get these uh, these pulmonary effects. Uh, another reason for the cardiac arrest that ha happens a lot. So people are more prone to heart attacks because there's a lot of these microclots, uh, microemboli uh, that go around the body, and uh, so they can clog up your coronary artery. Um, so we we also uh, know that this is one of the reasons for a lot of other have uh, disseminated problems in the body, and it's you can think of it kind of like um, kind of like uh, DIC. So uh, that's when your body kind of um, clots everywhere, and kind of as a, a, a kind of a counterintuitive side effect of that is that you you don't have the materials left to cause clots, so it can also cause bleeding issues, um, which thankfully hasn't been as significant as as a follow-on effect. Uh, that's no, I haven't heard about that one. So there's issues with blood thinning as well. Well, so this is the thing is is because it causes so it, you can think of it as I just uh, mentioned this here. You can think of it as kind of like a, a DIC, which so uh, just uh, disseminated uh, whatever the heck it is, coagulopathy. Um, so this is this is when your your body kind of clots everywhere, and the kind of counterintuitive side effect of this is that all the clotting factors, all the clotting cofactors that are consumed in that process, mean that you don't have them, you don't have as much of them left. Oh, so it makes you a semi-hemophiliac then. So that's the thing is, is we haven't really observed that in the wild so far. So thankfully, oh, so that would be something you might. That's a theoretical possibility. That's a thing to look for is is uh, bleeding issues as well. But it's largely so far has been clotting issues uh, that, that have cropped up. That actually brings up an interesting question. Do you know if that's related to the uh, quote unquote COVID foot we're hearing about? So that's one of the speculatory theories on that, and that shouldn't. It's not just the feet; it's also the fingers that could be affected as well. But the feet, since they're further away from the heart and lower, are going to be most likely affected. So it's kind of, uh, it's not as bad as DIC is what we're seeing, but it's also not, it's uh, it's definitely a clotting problem. You have microemboli floating around, lots of um, lots of uh, disseminated from, um, clot formation. Uh, so the, the whole COVID toes thing, it's very likely that that's going to be what's happening is that you have all those small capillaries down there and they get cut off. And unfortunately, by the time it starts to get to the point where you have peeling, you're probably going to be losing tissue because uh, that means it's definitely dead. Hmm. Well, that's not comforting so, at all. Yeah, it's really not comforting in the slightest, is it? No, and we've... Uh, yeah, I guess you just dropped right into that, so that's the only one I really missed. Aside from that, yeah, we're... Um, the What's the one that's getting a lot of play right now? We're hearing about uh, the lingering heart damage. That's... Uh, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> well, so no. here's the thing: people say that you know there's only so many people have died as as one of the go-to uh, excuses. And and I have to say this in this way: I I completely understand relying on that as a way of boosting your own self-confidence. But I also have to say that you're basically just lying to yourself when you use that as an excuse when someone says this thing is bad. Um, death is not actually going to be the only bad outcome here. And when they said before in that one study, which the, the author even now he was on Ellen, so being yeah, on take that, that what you will, yeah, being on that degenerates show to begin with means you're probably going to be spouting a certain agenda by itself. But he did correctly walk back the fact that he said uh, only eighty percent of the cases, or sorry, at, at least eighty percent of the cases were mild. What he meant by mild was did not require oxygen in the hospital. So. 
that means everything from not feeling anything to being uh, to having walking pneumonia, which means you can you're gasping for breath, but you don't quite need oxygen yet. So that was the 80% mild cases you heard about way back at the beginning of this thing. And uh, the breakdown of that didn't come out for a little bit later, and it wasn't very good. So there's there's a lot of things that make this really bad for you. Also, another thing we can mention, so aside aside from the heart damage, is the uh, the very much permanent lung damage that's coming out of this. Even for people who are asymptomatic, i.e., didn't feel a thing, they're coming back uh, later on and they're they're wheezing. The reason why is because it causes lung damage and it scars the lungs, and you also get pulmonary fibrosis. So lung damage can be repaired over time, oftentimes. Um, you, so the whole, the whole thing where your body produces new cells and you can get like new organs over time kind of concept by replacement for your lungs, it's about every seven years. Um, so that's, so that should tell you right off the bat, it's going to take a very long time for your lungs to recover from this if they do recover. Um, so some of the lung damage, the inflammation that causes some scarring that happens inside there, some of that will, will recover, but oftentimes scarring is going to be permanent for an organ. Um, that's just definitionally the way that the tissue uh, uh, repair mechanism works. When you have scar tissue, it doesn't repair. Um, the stuff around it, that's still kind of like inflamed or still a little bit damaged, but like repairing itself separately, that stuff will eventually recover. So the scarring won't be quite as bad as it looks uh, in your first, um, your first follow-up examinations, but the scarring will be permanent. Fibrosis is when you get that kind of scarring over different portions of your lung and this fibrous tissue does not go away. So basically wherever you get that scarring in that fibrous tissue, you have no lung function. So you have decreased capacity in your lungs. So couple that with a heart that now has damage to it. So it is not pumping as effectively and is susceptible to uh, fibrillations and uh, to arrhythmias. Then you have somebody who is not going to be able to do strenuous mechanical work that a lot of people rely upon. So it's not just going to, so if say that you only have, um, and this is a low ball estimate because in the country so far, it's around 5% mortality that we're expecting. Uh, five or 6% mortality rate is probably going to be the actual mortality rate for uh, the U S it's 15% in Italy. And, and that's largely due to um, systemic effects in the, in the uh, infrastructure, not due to the virus itself. That's that should tell you the contrast between having healthcare available with surge capacity and then exceeding that capacity. A lot more people will die if you don't have hospital access. So um, this uh, this this say we hit, we we decide that one percent of cases um, are going to die, uh, or or we'll we can use another round number five percent. If you have three hundred thirty million people. So this is why 1% is easier. If you have 330 million people, then 3.3 um, million people will die. That's going to monkey wrench the entire economy by itself. Now add on top of that, that you have a significant portion of people that are going to be hospitalized. So anywhere between one-fifth and one-fourth of patient, uh, people get, get this thing, get to uh, the point where they need a hospital. Um, so that's going to be a big economic hit by itself. And remember, uh, have, our doctors uh, are human beings as well. They are not robots, so they will be part of the problem of the infected as well. Yeah. Now, thankfully, oftentimes that has a bounce back effect where they come back kind of in fuller force a little bit later on. But that's if they all recover and recover completely. 
Um, but you also have people who are going to have uh, lung damage, heart damage. You have um, the fact that this stuff, uh, this this bug will also impact fertility significantly. So clotting issues are primarily going to be the complication for women. Um, but for men, it is also the fact that you have ACE2 receptors all over your testicles, just kind of the way that nature decided to make things fun. Um, so that is uh, that is an inflammation vector, and uh, that means that you can have direct damage from the immune response and viral attack on your uh, gonads. So uh, fertility might be impacted later on. We're not sure exactly how it's going to happen. So the we're not sure part is actually going to be the scariest part of that. There's quite um, a lot of that right now. And there's, there's still quite a lot of that. And that's one of the reasons why everything should look like an overreaction when we're done. Like that, that is by far the most important thing here is it should look like we freaked out over nothing. If we do everything right, then it should look like there was never going to be a problem in the first place. On that exact note, on that exact note, that's why my routine might seem extreme. If your routine seems extreme and it seems extreme to you, that means you're doing something right. Yeah. Now that shouldn't be to say that you should make yourself a nuclear bunker and pack yourself away with 10 years of spam. I don't know. In some people's cases, I might advocate that because they're annoying, but for most people don't do that. But yeah, you should, it should seem like you're a little bit paranoid, you know, but if you feel like you're a little bit like that, then yeah. But you should also kind of stop at a certain point, assess back to what you did at the beginning, say, okay, here's where I made reasonable modifications. And then you can, for some things you can say, okay, maybe this is a little bit too far. I can walk it back or it's just about right. And also depending on what kind of uh, conditions have changed, for instance, for whatever dumb reason, uh, people were still not saying it was airborne until, you know, a couple months ago. Um, Which to say technically, actually... But that's all nonsense because it resides in, you know, expelled droplets, which is why masks work. Yes, the virus is plenty small enough to get between the uh, spaces in a mask, any mask almost, but it is carried on your exhaled droplets. So to say it's, it isn't airborne, it is aerosolized would be a better way to understand. Sure. Here's something I should also say on that topic, by the way, because masks have been brought up several times now. Masks are not a monolith, and this is actually one, it's the same thing with testing. Testing is not a monolith. Um, these have nuance to them. So when people say masks do or don't work, you need to ask which kind of masks. So this is a great lead into that. Absolutely. Um, so an uh, ASTM. So I wouldn't recommend anything less than an ASTM level one procedure mask. This is what everyone calls a surgical mask, which is actually kind of a, a fit of irony here, not used ever in surgery. Um, so ASTM level one masks are designed to protect the patient from the doctor. So you are actively protecting everyone else from you in the case that you have an asymptomatic infection and you don't know it yet. Um, if you use a level two mask, these are using quarantine rooms. These will protect you somewhat. Uh, it's better than nothing, definitely. And it is offering an actual protection from other people at this point. ASTM level three is basically an ASTM level two with twice the, uh, the, the outside barrier, um, layered on and oh, these ASTM level three masks are actually where used in the operating theater. Uh, so those are the actual surgical masks. Now they look very much similar. So it's, it's not like you're making a mistake by saying, Oh yeah, that's a surgical mask, but you should know which kind of mask you're using. Most people are going to be using an ASTM level one mask if it's even certified at all. Now, most masks that are just called a surgical mask, even if they aren't certified are going to be, are going to be perfectly functional for their intended purpose, which is to prevent the spread. If both people are wearing 
in an interaction that's you know at an appropriate social distance there both people are wearing an ASTM level one mask the risk is reduced down to 1.5 percent of baseline risk which is an excellent reduction so that is that is a huge drop in your risk if you're both wearing a mask that said if you're wearing one of those cotton masks those washable masks any of that stuff um the the best crude analogy that i've been using is that if you can smell a fart through it then it's not going to protect if you can smell a fart through your pants then your pants are going to protect you is a great way to put it so um that's kind of the uh it's crude and it also doesn't quite get the whole message across because there are two kind of smelly things that come out of your ass there's the gas which is methanophile that you're smelling not the methane that's actually odorless uh, so methanophile as a gas will not be prevented from coming through a mask. But the rest of the scent that you, you breathe in, the rest of your brand, if you will, is particulates. And they are large enough, they should be blocked by something like an N95 mask. So if you're wearing an N95 correctly, everybody's fart should smell the same to you. It's that simple. Yeah, um, no, that's absolutely but reasonable. But a cloth mask is basically made out of the same stuff as your pants. And while that will prevent some droplet spread, it will not prevent all of these smaller aerosolized particles that are going to be able to pass through. Now you you will be you will be stopping stuff. It is better than nothing. It is a complete better than nothing solution. It is why it is still somewhat recommended. But as someone yeah, let me uh, break in here real quick and just say yeah. it does work. It now here's the thing though you're going to be an excellent comparison for uh, anyone of a uh, technical or. Or combat mindset would be to say, this is going to be, you're wearing a, uh, you've got a small shield and uh, maybe a plate protecting your heart. It's a little bit, and it might save your life, and it's not much, but it is well, protection. It would save someone else's life is actually what it comes down to. Now, that said, so this, so you might know our, our buddy Ratman on, um, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so he actually got... He uh, he pinged me and he said that he got uh, the new um, the new jobs hazard assessment from OSHA. So uh, or he was doing a new uh, so a JHA um, from OSHA. Uh, so they up updated regs on this as basically they're not recommending masks or cloth masks. Um, that so sense. that is because they base they don't protect the wearer. Pretty well, much no. at all. And, and I mean, it's if it's an OSHA regulation, that's kind of a, a thing that's part of that. But that's getting a little bit of inside baseball that a lot of people aren't going to know anything about OSHA regulations right. or any of that. So, so OSHA, NIOSH, all that stuff. Um, now, while the regulations are in need of a significant overhaul, the newer stuff is usually going to be kind of on target. One of the main problems with OSHA, NIOSH, et cetera, uh, NFPA is, is, is way worse on this. That's the National Fire Protection Act. Uh, so that's fire codes. Um, one of the reasons why these regulations are so annoying is that they have these layers of anachronistic, uh, contradictory regulation, but usually the stuff that is newer is going to be better to look at. And I'll, they've been doing a lot of work to kind of get rid of the, the contradictions and crap in there, but they still exist and it's a whole thing. But yeah, I would just pay attention to this. Um, so if you're worried about protecting you personally from everyone else, Cloth masks, ASTM level one surgical masks, so procedure masks, are not going to protect you. They're going to protect other people from you, and they're going to drastically cut down the risk of transmission, but they're not going to protect you. For that, you need at least an N95. 
And that's not so, complete protection. Well, that's your bottom end of protection. I would say that's the place to start personally. But yeah. if you at least yeah, AST, if you get at least ASTM level two, that is the point at which you are starting to protect yourself, and that's going to protect you from aerosolized droplets. ASTM level three is, I would say, is roughly on par if you're wearing it right with the protection you get from an N95. So N95 masks are the place that I would go to. That's what I use. Um, now I also use them with uh, UV radiation so that I can extend the use out to 10 to 20 uses. And that is probably going to be the bare minimum you need to be. If you're looking to just get N95s to use once and throw away, please, please, please do not do that. People need those masks. And the only reason I have them is because I was able to get a couple of them early. And then I have a friend who was, whose family sent him some uh, that I went ahead and verified on my own because he's from China, a great guy. His family, uh, thankfully, was not in the impacted areas and was able to send him some masks. Um, so he was very generous with our group, and he went ahead and handed out, you know, ten or ten or so to him, uh, the rest of us. Um, and uh, I was able to to trade some other masks that I had on hand that fit uh, that might fit him better with uh, these masks because they fit me a little bit better. Uh, clearly, one of them was designed for uh, people who are uh, from China, and one of them was designed more for people who are you know fat Americans like me. Right. Uh, so, uh, N95s, please, by all means, if you can get your hands on them and you have a UV light, go ahead and use those for personal protection. If they have valves on them, you know, that's probably not best to wear around other people if you're infected. But then again, you're probably not if you're taking that precaution. Just, you know, don't get cocky. Um, so mine don't have a valve on them, which is the reason why I'm fine using them everywhere. So that whole valve issue really is a thing because that means it's basically like the reverse of an ASTM level one. If you have a valve N95, you're protecting yourself and zero other people. Yeah. And I'll be honest. I'm, I am wearing, I'm wearing the effective, uh, it's, it's been tested up to N99 actually yeah. is what I wear, but it is a respirator. Now I have the respirators right. aimed specifically so that they hit my chest. And I'm doing yeah. what I can when I'm around other people. I don't exhale. I just take in a breath and I say what I might need to say because I understand. Well, a lot of there's a lot of people who are going to be uncomfortable taking things to the level that I do. Like uh, once once sure. I'm suited up, I'm suited up. I don't touch my face with anything. If I get an itch, that's too bad. Yeah, yeah. If you're wearing a mask, that's another thing to hit there. If you're wearing a mask, the whole purpose is that the outside of it could be contaminated. You should never touch it the same way. You know, the same way you shouldn't be touching your face. You should not touch your mask. If it needs to be adjusted, you know, if you need to go to the bathroom to adjust it, then go in there, wash your hands, touch the mask to adjust it where you need to, wash your hands again, and then you're done. The best yeah. thing that you can think of yeah. with relation to this, imagine once you've stepped out that front door. That your hands have a horrible, horrible case of poison ivy. Absolutely <laughs> terrible po case of poison ivy. You daren't to touch your face or anything that could get near your face. Yeah, or they're covered in sriracha or, or uh, habanero sauce, right? Yeah, whatever, whatever mental exercise works for you, use it. Because that is, that it's such a little thing that is such a big, big, big thing. So speaking of big things, I actually have something to mention on that topic. Uh, there was some big-brained dork that was out there saying, uh, "What was it?" They they said that you know, imagine a disease you have to get tested to know you have. And uh, so I went ahead and quote tweeted that dumbass and uh, said, "Yeah, you know, 
I can't I uh, can't believe that AIDS virus it takes uh, HIV uh, takes uh, was about ten years to uh, to give you AIDS. Stupid cancer. So this, this is this is comparable. Um, well, no, cancer you can't. Well, in most cases you can't pass it around. For dogs, it's different. They can get that that face cancer thing that's viral. Well, but yeah, human, we weren't talking communicable or not, but anyway, that's semantics. There you go. Actually, uh, HPV can cause cervical cancer. Same kind of deal, except that one I think you know you have. Um, so, so AIDS takes like uh, was it about an average of ten years to develop, and we thought it was just from gay people screwing each other in the ass, uh, which you know turned out to be a risk factor, but it wasn't the reason why they were getting cancer. Oh, sorry, cancer. It wasn't the reason they were getting AIDS. Um, so you have to get tested in order to know if you have HIV. And it's probably not likely you're going to develop symptoms for years, which means the entire time beforehand, if it's if it has a sufficient viral load, you are spreading that stuff. If you're having intercourse, you know, but this is it's completely different in that you have to like, you know, have blood contact, basically. So, you know, blood or semen is pretty pretty close contact. So no. the, yeah, the, the the outrageous brainlets who say something stupid like, you know, imagine a imagine a virus or imagine a, a sickness you have to get tested to know you have, or to know you had. Yeah, well, you, you know, imagine that we've already seen it several times in our history. So when you say something stupid like that, you know, yeah, the rest of that's quite are ridiculous. Now to a, to address another argument about the the masks don't work, it can just get in your eyes. Yes, yes, it can. Yeah. It can just get in your eyes. So, if you are, uh, if you have a prescription for glasses, wear them up as close to your eyes as you can. Because if thing. nothing else, that's a small yeah. shield. So sunglasses are a good, um, a good, also just as effective cover. That is to say, both of them are not really that effective on their own, but they're they're like a cloth mask, better than nothing. Yeah, absolutely. So if you can do something little, it will matter. At the end of the day. That said, if you wear glasses, when you get home, wash them too. Yes. Those things sit directly on your face. Now, that is getting into the the slightly more paranoid territory, but it is, I should say this uh, right off the bat here, one of the things they um, they did notice way back, you know, when, uh, when we were still having impeachment issues over here, they noticed that eye infection was was a, a distinct vector, um, especially in, 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 close, in an indoors setting, like, say, in a hospital crowded by people who are currently coughing with this new pneumonia they're walking around with. So it's not to say that it is going to be uh, a high risk if you're outside walking around, but it's also not to say that it's a zero risk. It's very much a verifiable, definite risk. So depending on your tolerance for risk, and that is one of the major things you should be considering because, again, a nation of adults should make adult decisions. You know, it's the same thing where you're deciding what you want to have for breakfast every day. You should decide, are you going to wear your glasses if you go outside? Are you going to wear a mask, etc.? If you're just jogging around your home and you live far away from other people, you don't need a mask. You know, Is there a non-zero risk you could get infected? Yes. But it's basically zero. If you're going to be walking indoors inside a building with a bunch of people, you know, like say in a shop, if you go to the grocery store, etc., I would definitely go ahead if you wear if you have if you get prescription glasses wear the glasses close uh, definitely wear a mask etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah absolutely wear the mask wear something if you if you've got prescription glasses you've got an excellent excuse to have them on 
And besides that, putting in your contacts could, one, inflame your eyes at a time when, you know, you don't want uh, you don't want them inflamed or to have to fight any extra infection that might show up. And two, you're going to be putting things directly into your eyes. So if you are going to be wearing contacts now, be doubly careful with how clean your hands are. Yes, definitely. <clears throat> Well, I think we've, uh, I think we've pretty much covered all the necessary, <laughs> necessary stuff on the masks and uh, the. Don't yeah. touch your face. You know, keep your hands oh, clean. So, so testing, uh, if we're if we're leading in towards oh, closing yeah, yeah, up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Please go ahead. Um, so the same way that we've just, you know, we just went through a whole bunch of different types of masks here, not to even go into respirators. Um, that should give you an idea that when people talk about masks, there's a comp they're complicated. You need to specify the mask you're talking about. Otherwise you, your sound, you could sound like an idiot in both directions. Like you don't need an N95 mask to walk outside around your own home. The same way that if you wear an ASTM level one mask at the grocery store, you're not actually protecting you. You're only helping out everyone else, which is an altruistic thing and does help you vicariously. But you know, you, you should be clear about the risk that's involved there. That's something I get into into Twitter bouts with Ratman about, which is funny. And I'm ha I love that he does that because everybody who does anything in the scientific community needs to have somebody who comes after their ass and says, "Yeah, but you're wrong." And I have been, and that, that's something that you all, you have to get used to every day if you do anything in science. You, most of your life is actually spent being completely wrong. Yeah, you have Sometimes. to. Uh... It is best in life if you can be comfortable with being wrong, because if you can't, you're going to find life is a lot more difficult than you want it to be. Yeah. All right. So testing. There are different types of testing, and it comes down to both the actual method of testing and also the discretion in who gets tested. So for testing the samples that come in to a lab, there are two types of primary tests you're going to work with. There's RTPR, um, there's RTPCR, and there is antibody titers. So antibody titers are very straightforward. You have tagged antibodies, or you just have antibodies, and you look for uh, uh, a change in your sample. Um, so basically, you just introduce a little bit of a little bit of a, a, t a candidate specimen that looks kind of like the disease. And if you have antibodies that attach to it, you uh, you can go ahead and collect them, or they'll just light up in fluorescence. So Basically, you can get some fluorescent spectroscopy going on. Very, very, very sensitive. Uh, you can detect uh, almost down to, um, you know, depending on how sensitive you're doing things, you can you can detect very, very small concentrations. We'll just say like that. So you look for IgG and IgM. IgG is your long-term um, your long-term immunity. So that comes well after you've been sick, uh, but the concentration does begin to come around uh, when you're recovering. So as soon as your body starts getting symptoms you might start to produce IgG. So it's not going to be very much beyond background, but eventually that'll come out. And that's the thing that gives you the immunity later on. So that for most coronavirus, again, for average, the average for human infectious uh, members is about three months uh, when you get peak concentration in your blood of IgG. IgM is the stuff that shows up uh, when your body doesn't recognize something and it says, okay, we got to get rid of this thing. Or if IgG does recognize it and it goes back and does a whole bunch of complicated stuff, you produce a bunch of IgM to help gunk up the works for the stuff that's causing you problems. Which so that's a, what tags the virus and so on. Which, as a quick note, is uh, part of the reason why people are still testing positive months later. 
So that's well, that's actually not true. Oh, wow, really, really. Please go into really. that because I haven't done the research on that one. So, so the, that's well. So positive should give the fact that mask was complicated and test is complicated should also tell you that positive is complicated. So, testing positive for IgM later on is probably not going to happen unless you have an active infection. Testing positive for IgG and not IgM says you had an active infection. You're no longer infected. But the RT-PCR, uh, RT that's the one that's complicated. So just PCR is the basis for this thing. The method is that you use PCR, which stands for polymerase chain reaction. Um, that's when you have, you can use even just a single strand of DNA is going to be enough. So what happens, you take your sample, you grind it up, so use what's called a tissue grinder. This exposes the inside of cells, um, including uh, including viruses. Um, so you have these strands of DNA floating around in your specimen at this point. You dump in a little bit of enzyme, and this is this is again kind of uh, uh, doing a, a broader overview of this. So um, you can imagine uh, you have a bunch of genes in your DNA, and I'm kind of titrating this, this uh, whole discussion down to a, a more general audience at this point. Uh, you have a whole bunch of these genes in your DNA, and each one of them has a little bit of DNA that says the gene is starting. Uh, they also have a little bit at the end that says the gene is ending. So just for, for general discussion purposes, you can imagine that the enzymes you add into the brew here only cut wherever the DNA says begin a gene. So uh, what that means is you get a whole bunch of little teeny strands floating around. And this is, if you ever like seen, you know, the, the CSI show or whatever, they do a DNA test and they hold it up to the light and you see the little strips on there. Those are all just different lengths of gene that have uh, uh, gone along with electrophoresis, which is a totally different technique, but uses the same kind of sample prep. Um, but then you load your sample into the machine. You add in polymerase, which is what builds DNA. And then you add in all the ingredients for DNA. So all your four bases already attached to the, uh, the kind of the backbone bit, which uh, then can get passed through with the uh, uh, enzyme. And so it'll, it'll draw in the ingredients on its own, just like a little, uh, little locomotive traveling along each of the strands. Uh, it splits it up, and then it does the little thing where it does replication. It has the other side of that polymerase that uh, does the kind of reverse copying on the other side. Uh, so basically, every time it processes a strand, it doubles the number of strands. So this is the chain reaction part. It's a way of amplifying the number of strands of uh, DNA inside of a sample, uh, little snippets of DNA. So the reason you don't use the complete DNA strand, the reason you chop it up into little bits, is that if you did the whole DNA strand, it takes the entire DNA strand worth of time to replicate the whole DNA strand. If you have little teeny chunks of it, there's a lot of places for this enzyme to attach onto the DNA and replicate it. So it's kind of a it's it's kind of a, a give or um, it's a trade off here. You can think of it like uh, RAM versus CPU in a computer. You know, you, do you want to spend a lot of time building up something in memory, or do you just want to process it real fast? Um, so the the uh, the test method is to basically build up the amount of DNA from your sample to a point where it's macroscopic and testable, uh, and every time you replicate it, you can cross-reference this distribution of different snippets of DNA with the known distributions that could be merged together. So it's a statistical method. And what you're looking for is a positive result in the uh, reference distribution mixed in with this unknown sample distribution. 
And eventually, you're going to have enough amplification of your sample to get a positive result pretty much regardless because, oddly enough, a lot of different organisms share similar genes. That's just the way that everything works. You know, we're like 95% same DNA as chimps, even though that is kind of uh, misrepresenting things because they have more copies of some things, fewer copies of other things, and they're arranged a little differently. If you do this kind of procedure to tell the difference between a human and a chimp, you actually can, but they're pretty darn close because, again, you've chopped it up into little snippets. Well, so, a lot of that has to do with basically the way that things have to be built where we are and how things are here. And right. what you've said there, I get it because I've actually, I just, I'm kind of, a, to put some clarity on this, why I actually get half of these incredibly large science words is I'm a hobbyist scientist. It's not something I've ever been paid for, but I enjoy uh, the science of it. So I'd like to try and break that down into a little bit more well, understandable terms. First thing I needed to clear, clarify on this, just yeah. to wrap up the RT-PCR thing. Yeah, absolutely. So the way the way that they make this test happen is they have a, a number of cycles they do. So so you run these things in a cycle. It takes a little over an hour to do one cycle. Uh, and then, so it's, it's a heating cycle because the, the activity of the enzyme is temperature dependent. So what happens is it runs through a cycle. It goes up in temperature a little bit, goes down in temperature a little bit. And then it adds in more ingredients than it does the next cycle. But each time you do a cycle, you can pull off a small bit of the sample and then test that the way I just mentioned with the statistics. So what you do is a number of cycles until you get, you're supposed to get a, a guaranteed positive result, or you should get a positive result by then. And if you don't after that, then there's definitely not anything in there. But what happens for a positive, uh, a positive result that the patient gets, so not the positive you're going to get regardless, uh, that's the end of the test uh, condition. Uh, is the first positive result. So if your first positive result happens before this cutoff where you know you should get a positive result that's a false positive, then it's plausible that it is a true positive. So that means that you haven't gone to the point where you sh you're going to have garbage data. You still have good data, but it still saw the distribution of the, the reference specimen. So if you get a positive result, say if you say, say the, the cutoff line is 14 replicates, uh, 14 cycles, then if you get, say, a positive result after three cycles, you definitely have a positive result. If you get a positive result after 11 cycles, you probably have a positive result. If you get a positive result at 13 cycles, by statistics, you're going to call it positive, but it's it's kind of iffy. So it's it's a little bit fuzzier of a test result. The patient gets yes or no. So that's something to take into account, is that there's a bit of a spread to this. But it is if they're getting a yes or no, there's a, a high likelihood they're getting a yes. The other thing is that they run these tests in, usually in triplicate. So they usually run three tests at a time per patient. So you're not getting a single test's worth of fuzziness. If they tell you yes, it's probably not based off of one PCR uh, test. It's probably based off of three. And that means that you should have a, a high confidence in this as a consumer going in to get a result. If you're a patient, you're, asking, you're waiting for a result. That yes, if you get it, is probably not a false positive at this point. Now it can go, it can come and go, uh, which is one of the weird things we've observed in the past here. But those, you should have a high confidence in those. They're going to be like ninety-five, at least, you know, probably ninety-nine percent plus confidence that you should have in these uh, results. But again, this is why they, they, this is why the PCR takes longer. The um, uh, antibody titer takes ten minutes, including the the amount of time it takes the doctor to walk down to the uh, the hematologist. 
I really wish that I could explain what you just went over in a simple way, and there kind of isn't. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. It's just kind of the way it works. It's it's uh, a very complicated thing, and I mean, you're just going to kind of have to do your own background work on that because I've been racking my brain about what kind of analogy I could give you, and you just kind of have to understand how these things work so, to a degree to wrap your head around what all of that so means. Here's the way I can describe it that'll help people understand the way that the results were evolving over time from the beginning of this pandemic approaching the U.S. until now, where we have more confidence in the results. PCR will always work as long as you have a, a good known original specimen that you can test against, which we did have. So as long as you can get that at the very beginning and you can build up a library of these, these known res, uh, reference results, which is why PCR is so versatile, then you can always use PCR. The downside is that PCR is not as concrete as I just mentioned, because of that kind of variance in the number of cycles it takes to get a yes. So the antibody tests are always later, and they always come later because you have to get enough of the materials on hand. You need to get enough of this kind of uh, dead virus, if you will. It's almost like a vaccine, if you think of it like that, where it's, it's kind of the reverse order. Instead of using a vaccine to tell your body to generate the antibodies, you're now using the dead you know, virus, or in this case, it's a tagged molecule that it attaches to. You just use the receptor sites. Um, but the principle is the same. Uh, you're just using the, the the thing that you're the pathogen as a, a test material. You need to replicate enough of that material to get it out to people to have those tests, and that takes time. So antibody tests are very specific. PCR tests can work against a broader library of known can of known specimens. Um, an antibody test will always test for one disease at a time. And in so, general, an antibody test is kind of a better thing, but you have to get to where you've got, for one, enough isolated antibodies from the individual in question, and two, you have to have enough of an understanding of the um, have to have enough agent, understanding. The, the agent in question. You've got to have enough understanding of that to be able to read what you're getting. So here's the other thing. If your body is immunocompromised, or if for some reason your body is not immunocompromised, but you happen to be one of those unfortunate rare individuals who doesn't produce an antibody for a specific virus, for whatever reason, PCR will detect it because you will have an established viral load. It's looking for the virus, whereas the antibody test is only looking for the antibody. So if, if you have a negative antibody result, that does not mean you don't have the virus but it means that your body is at least not reacting to the presence of a virus. Now for most people, and this should be everybody, I, it's probably a guarantee that one of these poor individuals is never going to listen to this thing just by, you know, by statistics, I'll be wrong here, but just in the same way I could be right. There might be one individual out of seven and a half billion, but if you're, you know, the, it's very, 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 very likely if you get a negative antibody result that you actually don't have the virus. It's very, very likely that that's the case. If you had a previous positive result, then that's probably not true, and it's just something weirds going on with your health, and you should talk to a doctor. But if you never had the virus and you get a negative antibody result, which I actually I can just share this. I just uh, saw my doctor recently. I went ahead and just for the sake of the statistics uh, for for public health, I went ahead and had myself tested negative IgG. So. You know, I had a cold back in in January um, after I got done with with skiing with family, and uh, and it was just a really bad cold. But you know, it didn't last for very long, and it was pretty pretty 
definite that it wasn't this uh, this new pandemic going around, just a cold. Uh, maybe you know the seasonal flu that was going around at that time. Um, but you know, just to make sure, I got that test done and negative IgG. I can safely sleep at night knowing I've never been exposed to SARS two. Now, as an interesting little segue, I can actually use that to tell you a fascinating story. A guy sure. I work with who uh, works with the CDC, uh-huh. he ended up with, around the time that the outbreak was really spreading around here, he works uh, with the CDC in um, rehab and recovery. Okay. And he decided to stick around where I am instead of moving to like a great big city area. Yeah. Because of... Uh, well, he just, you know, wanted to be a family man, wanted to be uh, kind of settled down, didn't want to move around, and so decided to stay at a one of the more safe spots, considering how big cities are now, luckily enough. But somehow, right. the guy ends up, he caught it. And okay. that mild fl- cold you were talking about? Yeah. That's it. He wasn't uh, he wasn't asymptomatic. He yeah, just got... Yeah, just to him, it was a couple oh, days what? of a mild cold. But wow. uh, didn't didn't realize or know until sometime later. But being CDC, they're like, every if you're doing any work with us, you got to get tested. And he's like, well, I'm not sick now, so you do the antibody test. They're like, yeah, you've got he's got the antibodies. He ends up doing the uh, uh, convalescent plasma as well, so yeah. his plasma's out there helping save lives too, which is dope. But uh, yeah, and funny enough, his wife immunocompromised. I don't know specifically wow. what with. Did not catch it. Lucky her. Oh, quite, quite. Wow. But I mean, but uh, that just kind of goes to show you just how peculiar this thing really is. Well, I mean, I, I imagine that if he's with CDC, he's probably at least taking all the precautions normally during a flu season, anyway. Uh, so again, this should also kind of this should kind of uh, magnify that that need for those basic precautions. You know. Yeah. Don't take this as. Well, if some <laughs> CDC guy and his wife didn't even get it, no, take this as they got very lucky. Very well, here, lucky indeed. I think he just followed basic procedure during a flu season that he didn't touch his face very often. He probably washed his hands before everything, you know, including... Uh, that, that's if just, the guy that's knows he's got a little bit of a cold and his wife yeah. is immunocompromised just in general, oh, then he's probably, being a CDC guy, taking some extra precautions. Maybe not as much as you would now. But probably more than your average individual, which well, yeah. just goes to show you, if you do some basic things, it has a large payoff. So, and this is also to say, he's got a very specific circumstances having an immunocompromised wife. He probably is a little bit more attentive to these needs certainly. at the get-go. But certainly, you know, the whole the whole basics on on just washing your hands, not touching your face, staying away from people who are sick, definitely. You know, um, just cleaning the frequently used surfaces about as frequently as you use them, that kind of thing. These are all basic steps that everybody should be doing anyway during a flu season, let alone during a pandemic, that are very effective uh, just as, as kind of a, a prophylactic approach in your life to preventing yourself from getting any of these diseases uh, that are highly communicable. So that's what actually amazes me is that this is a very highly communicable disease uh, from you know just the aerosolized droplets in your breath from coughing and so on. That's actually, frankly, the most uh, intriguing part of it. I'm guessing it's because he knows to stay away from his wife while he's sick. No, I would hope like, so. Distance and, and preventing yourself from coughing in the direction of someone is going to do a, a whole lot more than you can imagine. You know, just, just coughing into your shoulder to prevent yourself from contaminating your own hands is a big one, too. 
or coughing into your elbow. Yeah, absolutely. And another one, uh, a real simple, basic tip. If you absolutely must touch your face, if there's something there, say, and you don't really have the other option, use the inside of your shirt. Yeah, or uh, and another one to use. Another another good one is to um, to just uh, use the collar of your shirt and your knuckle. Absolutely. Just, so just use your your finger and thumb to lift the collar up, and then when you uh, pull it, put your shirt down, use your knuckle to give yourself a little rub through the shirt. That'll you'll definitely feel that more than say your fingertip. Absolutely. Say well, it's the summer. You get hot days. Yeah. You're about oh, yeah. to get some sweat in your eyes. It's sitting in your eyebrows. If you don't do something about it, it's going to drip down and it's going to sting and it's going to have all that crap from your forehead in it. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is a time and a place to touch your face. If you're going to be careful, if you can keep a spare napkin or uh, something legitimately disposable around that you can use. If you don't have that as your option, just like the man says, uh, grab in a safe way, a piece of your, uh, Clothing, collar, inside of a shirt, coat, uh, preferably not the inside of a uh, a cuff because that's going to be around your hands and sliding up and down around areas that see a lot of use and uh, a lot of real estate. So kind of avoid that area. But anything that is normally free of uh, like wear and uh, dirt, like you know the parts of your clothes that get dirty. Use somewhere that isn't one of those, and you're going to be a lot better off for the trouble. Yeah, and here's another thing I should mention. Uh, you mentioned in your routine earlier that you uh, use gloves. So as long as you don't have any like open wounds or cuts or anything like you know you don't have scrapes and stuff like that going on, your skin is a very good barrier. Uh, even even you know under your nails and all that all that stuff, your skin's a fantastic barrier that is going to protect you from this thing. It's not going to get through your skin. So if you need to go out and you you know say you don't want to use gloves or you don't have access to them or you don't, you know any of that even though that's kind of all farcical in its own right because you can get access to gloves you know, just go to a hardware store. That said, if you don't if you're not comfortable with them and you know you're going to get to the point where you can wash your hands before you do anything else, you can just let your skin do its job and then just do a good job washing your hands at the end. You know you can walk out you don't have to wear gloves but again if it's it sometimes it can be a good idea for those who have other other needs. But if you don't need gloves, you don't have to use them. Just make sure you wash your hands at the end. You know, hand sanitizer, um, more than twenty seconds using soap and water. Make sure the water is uh, is like slightly above room temperature. So warm water is better than cold water. Um, for me, whenever I'm going to do food prep and I've been outside during the day, I use um, I use chlorhexidine gluconate uh, based soaps. So that's surgical soap or surgery scrub. Uh, the brand I'm using is Hibiclens. You can find that in the grocery store. It's very, uh, very readily available. Usually, is about an eight ounce container for like uh, ten or twenty dollars, which is overpriced, but whatever. But you only need five milliliters of it at a time, so one one eight ounce bottle is going to last you actually quite a while. Uh, but I I, use, I just use uh, use that stuff. Chlorhexidine gluconate actually has an advantage in that it's it binds to your skin, um, so you're you're you know not really protected, but you're at least better than background protected for up to six hours after you use it. This is why I use it before food prep. Uh, that way, you know, if I accidentally like graze my hand past something, there's at least, um, you know, I would Some say, I would say protection. 
I would say it's it's better than the background protection that a cloth mask would provide you, but it's not a whole lot better in terms of relative risk reduction. But it is something. Uh, it's 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 very it's it's used in every surgical operating theater out there. Four percent solution of uh, chlorhexidine gluconate, and the stuff has soap in it. You know, but it's, it's just that this stuff also it kills everything and it sticks around. Oh, probably not a bad idea at all. One of yeah. the main things I like about uh, the gloves, I I spent the money on some gloves that are, well, again, the copper-infused thing. They will, to yeah. a degree, self-disinfect, but that's going to take a significantly long amount of time. But the most important thing about really having your outside outfit is that you have a routine. But beyond that routine, with the gloves, if you're wearing them, you will notice you're wearing them. It makes everything involving using your hands much more thoughtful and you're more connected to it. You're not going to... It's easier to not touch your face. It's easier to not scratch somewhere. It's easier to do things the right way. To only use the fronts of your hands, the bottoms of your fingers to interact with things and to use the back to interact with the things they shouldn't. Like, uh, I adjust my glasses only with my knuckles. I, uh, you know, when I get home, I try and use the back of my hands to open things where they will have been less exposed than the hands and fronts. You can be more mindful more easily when you have these reminders. Absolutely. Sorry, I'm oh, God, just adjusting something here on my desk. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Uh, so, so, um, yeah, it's, and it's, Look, wearing gloves is absolutely going to be better than not wearing gloves. It's just that your relative risk reduction is not going to be as significant as long as you're already following these kind of basics, um, basic risk reduction uh, techniques. So just, you know, the, the, the very simple act of never touching your face if, you, uh, if you're outside and about is going to do wonders for you already. Like just adding gloves to that is, is just reducing uh, accidental interactions of, of a different degree. And to uh, to add my own specific spin to all this, you could uh, look at... What in the world? Oh, wait. Okay, it's just not recording you. Okay, I thought my uh, audio just died. It stopped recording? Uh, no, no. It just uh, gave me a weird readout for a second. Anyway, that's completely unrelated. As I was saying, to uh, throw my spin on this thing, um, God helps those who help themselves. So if you are to view this in entirely metaphysical light, the fact that you do the actions will carry a greater weight than having not done them. So from a purely mimetic effect, do it. Because you're saving lives. Perhaps your own. <laughs> okay. Um... So I think we've we've kind of covered a lot here. Yeah, I, I think so. And I'd say this is a pretty good kind of introduction to the way that things are going to roll. All right. So, uh, so yeah. Do you have any other, like news topics or anything else you wanted to cover before we wrapped up, or um... uh, not particularly? I wanted to just have a discussion and uh, you know let people kind of get a feel for who we are and how this kind of thing is going to kind of roll. I mean, it's. As everything I do, it's all just going to probably be slightly more freeform than uh, scripted because I just kind of don't get scripts. There you go. All right. So thanks, anybody still here?
And uh, stick around for the next time. See you soon.